Y'all turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. I want to close out this year in a good way and get us started, get us ready, teed up for a new year starting tomorrow. And next Sunday, we're going to launch into a whole year focused on something exciting. Uh, You should have have received uh, something with your worship guide on the way in. It talks about our vision for ministry in the next year in 2018. Uh, This year has been quite a year. 2017 has been an interesting year to say the least. Some very, very good things have happened. Some very, very difficult things have happened. I know that when we look back uh, from, from a distance on this year, we'll, we'll remember two things. We'll remember Hurricane Harvey and the Astros winning the World Series, right? Something very, very good and something very, very bad. And yet I'll remember a lot of other stuff just being pastor of this church, it was my first full year. I came in, you know, early in 2016, but my first full year as pastor here, it's been quite a year. I, I think about uh, the days after Hurricane Harvey and, and all the volunteer hours I saw this church put in. We weren't the only ones by any means. Probably every church in this area, in, in the Houston area, around the state, across the country, churches from all over the place, and people who aren't members of churches, people pitched in. But I saw members of this church mudding out houses, which is hard work, volunteering in shelters, gathering food, gathering clothing, making deliveries, bringing lunches to people. Uh, You know, Alan talked about $305,000 that we got to give away as a church to various ministry causes. I want you to know that over 60,000 of that was directly to Hurricane Harvey victims, and and that enabled them to get back on their feet. Uh, That that was a, a blessing to us as a church because you were generous. We were able to help some people who really needed help. 2017 was a good year for this church financially. When last year and the last couple of years, the church has been struggling to meet its obligations. Last year, we finished the year in the black, and that's, that's exciting. That's a lot less stressful, and, and that's a blessing because you, again, were very generous. And, and it's a year in which we had over 100 new people join our church. That was fun. And I've gotten to know some of those people. Some of them I'm still getting to know. Um, you know, over 40 of those people were by baptism. And that's thrilling. I didn't baptize most of those folks. You know, Christian and Alan do end up doing most of the baptisms. I'm thankful for them to get that opportunity. But it's just exciting to see people joining God's family and saying, now I'm a member of the family I'll be a part of for all eternity. My sins are forgiven and I know where my eternity lies and I have a new identity in Christ. And even people who came into this church who are already believers in Christ, that's exciting too because it's so, it's so common for people today to slip out of church attendance and, and membership in a body of believers and say, well, you know, life just gets too busy. But that's a hundred people, over a hundred, who said, I'm going to commit myself to a local body of believers because that's what God's commanded us to do and that's how we make a difference in the world and how we grow in Christ. So God's making a difference and I'm excited about that and I hope you're excited too. But tomorrow starts a new year and I don't know what the new year is going to bring. I I really don't. I'm not even going to try to predict it. But I know what we have planned. I know what we have planned as a ministry staff, and some of that's in that pamphlet you should have received. But I want to talk to you about this for just a moment, because back in September, we were supposed to have our, our ministry staff retreat in August, but Harvey had something to say about that. So we, we went in September, and what we came up with was we want to focus on, in the coming year, equipping you for your purpose in God's mission. See, God is never standing still. He's always at work in this world, and you have a purpose in that mission. There's a reason why you're alive. Next week, we're going to start a series that talks about how to live life on purpose, how to find the reason why you exist. 
And the rest of the year is going to be about how we can equip you for that purpose so that you're living life purposefully. So that you're living life with joy and a sense that I matter. And you see that everything you do has a, an eternal dimension to it. And if we, can, if we can accomplish this goal, if we can really equip each one of you for your purpose in the world, you're going to live lives of joy and hundreds, maybe thousands of lives are going to be impacted as a result. That's exciting stuff. That is really exciting stuff. And it's not going to happen if I preach really well. I mean, I hope I do. And you do too, because otherwise that's 30 minutes of really, really nasty stuff you have to sit through every week. But it's not about my preaching. It's about what the Holy Spirit does. So I hope you're praying about these things. I hope you're praying that God would take this church and lead us into the, the mission and the ministry that He wants us to have. But there's also a series of events that are coming up in the coming year. And this is in your bulletin. It's in also that pamphlet you should have received. But I want you to write these dates down because there's an event, a series of events coming up in this year called the Missional Pathway. Essentially, this is four times this year we're going to gather together on a weekend, not a Sunday, on a weekend, and we're just going to talk. And, and somebody's going to come out from the outside and lead this. And, and it's going to be for, for you to discover, here's why God put me here. Here's what I'm skilled at. Here's how I can serve. And then here's how we as a church can make a greater impact on our community. I'm excited about it. So here's the four dates. And if you can, please be here for all four. February 16th through 17th, April 7th, October 6th, November 3rd. Now, I don't know about you, but a date doesn't exist until it's in my phone, on the calendar in my phone. That's why Sunday mornings when people are like, hey, preacher, can I come see you on Tuesday? I'm like, please send me an email or something because I forget otherwise. So you might want to enter these dates right now or however you keep track of time. So as I'm thinking about today and, and I was getting ready for this week, actually, I, I had to prepare all this stuff way before Christmas um, but as I was thinking about December 31st and what we wanted to talk about, knowing what we're going to do in the coming year, what our aim is going to be, I was drawn to this passage, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. For my money is one of the four or five most important passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. I love it. And, and one of these days, if, if, I'm, if, I, if, if I live long enough and, and God just puts it there for me, I want to preach through this very slowly so we can go through this word by word. But I just want to touch on this this morning because what this passage is, is our job description as followers of Christ. If you've ever worked anywhere, and most of us have, isn't it good to know a job description, know why you're there? Uh, my wife once had a job where she get, went to work every day and didn't know what she was supposed to do. The boss was just so vague. He would she was just sitting there, and she was bored to tears. That should never happen. We should know why we exist. As a people of God, as a corporate body, why are we here? That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21 is about. I want us to take a look at, at why we're here and what we're supposed to be about. So verse 16 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Man, there's so much there. But what I want to focus on this morning is three things. And that is our vision, our mission, and our self-image. If we're going to fulfill this job description God's laid out before us, we have to change our vision, our mission, and our self-image. So let's talk about those real quickly. Our vision, first of all. By vision, I mean the way we see other people. When I was in high school, one of my very best friends was a guy named Chris. Uh, Chris was tall. He was about 6'1 or 6'2. That's tall in my book. He was athletic. He was all district in football, basketball, baseball. He was movie star good looking. And I say that as a, as a proud male, red-blooded American man, I could look at this guy and say, dang, that's a good looking man. He, he just is. And, and, and I, I mean, he was a knucklehead just like I was. He was a teenage boy, but he just, he had this, this way about him. He just knew. He knew he had it all together. We didn't use the word swag back then, but he had it, okay? I mean, he, he, he wore that, he knew how to wear a letter jacket. He just, and it was funny. It, it, it was very enlightening for me because lots of girls would talk about Chris when he wasn't around and they'd say, well, I can't stand Chris. He's so stuck up. That all changed whenever he walked into the room. I, and I observed this many times. Girls who five minutes earlier had been saying bad things about him, he'd walk into the room and all of a sudden their eyes lit up and they were competing for his attention. And for some reason, his jokes were just funnier than my jokes. And, and his complaints were taken more seriously. And his accomplishments were more impressive. And I said to myself, isn't it good that we don't live in a world where men are so shallow in the way they look at women? That's a joke. Y'all can laugh, okay? That, that is a joke. We're all shallow. Can we admit that? I mean, just basic nature, we judge people by their appearances. And not just the, the proportions of their face and body, but the way they dress, the kind of car they drive, the kind of house they live in, what's on their resume, the way they raise their kids. We judge people based on very shallow and superficial things. And what Paul says in verse 16 is, that should be something we can say, I used to be that way. I used to be someone who was very shallow in the way I, I judged others. Because as Paul says in verse 17, hey, I, I was once wrong, or verse 16, I, I once was wrong about Jesus. We used to regard Christ from an earthly point of view. Paul is saying, I used to be that way. Man, I, I used to think Jesus was the worst person alive. He was a heretic. He was a, a traitor to our nation. He was a false messiah, a false prophet, maybe even demon-possessed. I used to hate Jesus, and then I met him, and then I realized who he really was. And if I can be that wrong about the most important person who ever lived, I'm never again going to trust my instincts in judging other people. Instead, I'm going to see them not for who they are in my eyes, but for who they could be in Christ. That's what verse 17 is about. Verse 17 is one of the great encouragements in all the Bible. No matter who you are, or no matter who this person is who you're tempted to judge or despise, God can transform them. So it's not about who they are, it's about who they can be. The person you are looking at today is not the person they will someday be if they let Jesus take charge of their lives. And who they become is somebody amazing. And we can be part of that process. 
but not not if we're shallow, not if we put people in categories and say, well, this person's, this person's trash. I don't, I don't need them. I, this person is just annoying. If we put people in categories, then we miss the opportunity to fulfill our job description. Because Jesus didn't do that. You notice in the Gospels, Jesus spent most of his time around the kind of people you and I do our best to avoid. You ever thought about that? And there's this one story where Jesus is having dinner in the home of a well-to-do man, Simon the Pharisee. But even then, he just sort of ignores his wealthy host because a sinful woman comes into the room. He's like, ah, this is the person who really wants to hear from me. So the question you need to ask yourself is, am I getting to the point? Is God changing my vision enough that I'm able to look beyond appearances and beyond those little prejudices we all have? Am I getting to the point where I can look beyond all of that and see somebody for who they are in God, for the way God sees them? Am I able to look at people and not say, okay, here's what this person can do for me. They can help me socially. They can help me career-wise. They can bless me. They make me laugh. I can look beyond all that and instead say, why has God brought me into this person's life? Why has God even introduced this person to me at all? What benefit can I be to them? That's the, the vision change we're looking for. And that's what we should be praying for. We should change our vision. We should also ask God to change our mission. Help us to see ourselves in a different way. Not just as individuals. That's what we're going to be talking about in the year to come. But as a church, as a corporate body of believers, if you're a member of this church, what is this church here for? Why do we exist? Verses 18 and 19 talk about that. It talks about how God has reconciled us to Himself. Now, that's a different way of looking at salvation than we usually do. You know, as evangelical Christians, we stress, hey, you've got to pray the sinner's prayer and get yourself baptized. And, and once you ask Jesus into your heart, then your sins are forgiven and you go to heaven when you die. All of that is true. I don't mean to take away from any of that. But this is a different way of looking at salvation. He says, this is God reconciling us to Himself. There once was stuff between us and God and He's made that stuff right. I had a friend in another church and she came to church one Sunday and she was, she was in tears and she said, y'all need to pray for me because this week I made a big mistake at work and I know it cost the company a lot of money. And so I, I know I'm going to get fired this week. I just need for God to provide for me. And so we began to pray for her and we prayed for her the next week. And the next Sunday she came back and she was in tears again, but this time tears of joy because she said, my boss actually said, we're not going to fire you. We're just going to choose to absorb that cost. We're going to eat it because we value you. That's, that's amazing. And yet that's what God has done for us. Except it wasn't a mistake that is fireable. It's a mistake that, that should result in our death, that should result in our eternal separation from Him. And here's the truth about forgiveness. Anybody who says it's easy to forgive, every time you have to forgive someone, you're eating the cost of what they did to you. So if they, if they borrow your car and wrap it around a telephone pole and you choose to forgive, that's you saying, I don't want you to try to pay me back. It's all right. I don't want this to stand between us. I'm going to eat that cost. If they insult you, hurt your feelings, you forgiving them is saying, I'm going to eat the cost of what you did to me instead of trying to get you back for what you did to me. To, instead of trying to make you feel bad or even hating you in my heart, I'm going to, I'm going to want good things for you. And that's what God did for us. He absorbed the cost of all of our sin, all the sin of every person who ever lived. He absorbed it in Himself. 
And we'll get into more of that in verse 21. But we are now ministers of that reconciliation. We're messengers. That's what verse 18 tells us. We have that privilege of going out into the world to people who don't know this good news yet. And they're like my friend. They're still living in that portion of time where they're like, I don't deserve good things to happen to me. I, bad things are going to happen because I deserve bad things. And we're here to say, no, no, no. Good things are here for you because God has, in Jesus, reconciled you to himself. And for those people who say, I don't know why life doesn't work out for me, they don't understand that the emptiness they feel is because of this gap between them and God, that God has already reconciled if they'll only accept it. We get to share that message. And we also get to be ambassadors. That's what verse 20 is about. We are Christ's ambassadors in the world. What an honor it is if you're a person who the government of this nation says, we trust you to represent us in Japan or Peru or Thailand or Indonesia or Ecuador or the Czech Republic or any nation you want to name. And if you get that responsibility, that privilege, it's on you to represent us well in that country. And yeah, you need to learn the language, you need to learn the ways of that country so you can have a, a happy life. But your job is not just to make a good home for yourself. Your job is to represent us. You need to never forget where you're from. And that's our calling. That's our part of our job description as well. Our mission as a congregation is to represent Christ in this community so that the whole community knows. This is what Jesus is about. Why? Because I see it in them. Y'all know what the St. Bernard dog is? You've seen St. Bernard's, right? You've seen movies. We don't have many St. Bernard's down here. It's kind of a big dog breed for such a hot part of the world. But they actually originated in a monastery in the Alps, the Swiss Alps, the, the monastery of, of St. Bernard. And for years, you've probably seen the cartoons, right? They were used for rescuing people in the snow. Uh, a, a, what is it called? Landslide? Uh, avalanche! There we go. Ding, ding, ding. An avalanche would happen, and the monks would go out with their dogs. And the dogs and the monks would rescue people, or someone would be lost in a blizzard, and, and they would go out searching, and they'd find and help. Well, years ago, uh, humanity invented a better way to rescue people. It's called the snowmobile right? So monks with dogs can't compete with a, a trained person on a snowmobile. And so for decades, the monks just raised the dogs because they'd always done it. Because people would come and visit them from other countries as tourists, and they wanted to see these famous St. Bernard dogs. And finally, a few years ago, the monks decided, we're done with the dogs. We're not going to raise them anymore. I don't think they shot them. Don't worry, they're monks, okay? They, they probably put them on Craigslist or something, but they, they don't raise the dogs anymore because they said, listen, we're spending all our, times taking care of the, all our time taking care of these big dogs because they eat a ton of food and they need a ton of exercise. And not to get indelicate, but they leave a ton of stuff in various places and somebody's got to clean that up. And we're spending all our time taking care of these dogs and that's not our mission. Our mission is to pray and to study the Word of God and to go out in the community and to help others in His name. And so people were upset with them. Hey, man, you're the St. Bernard Monastery. You've got to keep these dogs. No. Our job is to serve the Lord, not to raise dogs. And that is the question that every church needs to constantly ask itself is, are we spending our time doing stuff just because we've always done it? 
just because people like the fact that we do it, but it's no longer really reaching people. It once did. It once was useful for rescuing people from, from darkness, but now we just sort of do it because we've always done it. And Grandpa, man, it meant a lot to Grandpa, and he's in heaven now, and boy, he'd sure be upset if we stopped doing it. That's not a reason to keep doing something. And I don't have anything specific in mind. I am not announcing today the end of any specific program. I am telling you that if I'm the pastor that I should be and we're the church that we should be, there will be times, maybe this year, maybe in the future, where we say this program needs to end. It had a fantastic use in its day, but it's no longer reaching people. And we can't waste our resources and our volunteer hours doing something just for the sake of keeping it going. Third, our vision, our mission, but we've also got to change our self-image. Because the way you see yourself is going to change the way you treat others. Just in as, a, as an example, if you're a person who's very successful, if you're a person who has made it to the top, whatever that looks like for you, you will have a tendency, you can't help it, you will have a tendency to look down on people who haven't accomplished as much as you. You'll just have a tendency, even unspoken, to think when you see them, well, they just didn't work as hard as I did. On the other hand, if you have a low self-image, if, if you just don't like what you see when you look in the mirror, or you, you're embarrassed about mistakes you've made in the past, or, or you just feel like everything you've tried, you failed, you'll have a tendency to resent people who are doing better than you are, and, and to look at them and say, how come they get all the breaks? How come they've had everything in life handed to them? I've had to fight for everything. And either way, there's going to be a... a, a an arrogance or a resentment that keeps you from fulfilling your purpose. But not if you follow Jesus. Because look at verse 21. Verse 21 is one of those verses we all ought to have memorized. This is powerful stuff. God made Him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We could spend a lot of time there. Let me just point out two things. First of all, it doesn't just say that Jesus paid for our sin. It says He became our sin. And I don't understand metaphysically how that happens. What I know is true, what is borne out in Scripture, is that God hates our sin because of what it does to us, because of what it does to our world, and that somehow God was able to channel all of that hatred all of that anger, that justified anger toward the destructiveness of evil and focus it on one point, laser focused on one point, and that point was himself in the form of Jesus, the Son of God. He became our sin and paid the price. And then there's the second thing I want to point out is it says we become his righteousness. Jesus became our sin, so we became his righteousness. And that means, get ready for this, if life is a courtroom, God has not said not guilty. Because not guilty just means, well, there wasn't enough evidence to convict. You got off on a technicality. No, God looks at us and sees righteousness. This is God saying innocent. Because we now bear the righteousness of Jesus. We are the righteousness of Jesus. And I think this is so literally true. If Jesus were here in the flesh and you were to take him aside for five minutes and just start saying, hey, Jesus, I love you. I just don't know how you could ever love me because when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was so mean to my parents and I gave them fits and I was mean to people who were different than me. And then when I got married, I, I was 
inconsiderate to my spouse, and, and I even had a marriage that broke up because, in part, of, because of my selfishness and I, I, my kids. I, I sometimes took out my frustrations on them, and even today, I've got thoughts that are so lustful and thoughts that are so bitter and thoughts that are so hateful, and and and. Sometimes I say things that are awful and I can't take them back. And Lord, I just don't understand how you could love me. If you were to say that to him, I I think he would literally say, I don't know what you're talking about because you didn't do any of those things. I took responsibility for all of that. It's done. Move on. And that's some very, very good news. If you're even partially aware of the sin debt you and I have, that's the best news you'll ever hear. How does that make you feel? It shouldn't make you feel arrogant, that's for sure. There is no Christian who should ever feel superior to any fellow human being. Not when you comprehend the depths of the depravity he had to forgive. Not when you comprehend the pain he went through because of us. We can't possibly feel arrogant. On the other hand, we can't possibly feel inferior. We can't look at somebody else and say, well, they're highly favored and I'm not. Not after we realize how much God paid to rescue you from sin and death and eternal separation. Not when you consider the extraordinary lengths He went to just to give you a chance to spend eternity with Him. So what it comes down to is, You're the most amazing, spectacularly important thing on the face of the earth. There's nothing that can compare to you. And it's not because of your looks or your intelligence or your money. It's not because of anything about you. It's because God in His grace has chosen to adopt you into His family and to make you a co-heir with Him of the glories of all creation. Now, does that resonate with you? Does that, when you hear that, do you say, yes, that's my story? Well, good. Does the world know that? Does the world know that's your story? Is there anything about the way that you live and the way you represent God in the world and the things that you say and the way you treat people that would indicate to them that you're a person who is a sinner saved by grace, that you're a person who went from the scrap heap to the penthouse, from the orphanage to the throne room? Does does anything in your life indicate that? And if that's not your story, if you heard what I just said and you were like, well, that sounds good, but I don't feel that way. In just a moment, right before we take the Lord's Supper, you can come forward and talk to me or talk to Alan and we'll tell you the next steps to take because that can be your reality today. See, that's our job. That's our job description. I, I just want to close with this. Imagine, imagine you have a teenage daughter and imagine one day you wake up and your daughter's not out of bed yet and you go to check on her and you find that she's gone. She's just taken all her stuff and left. Now, that's every parent's nightmare and You're upset and your spouse is upset, but you say, hey, she's a teenager. She can't handle this world. She'll come home in a couple of days. But a week passes and she's still not home. And then another week and another week and your heart is broken and you don't know what to do. You know she's still alive because she's posting on social media and she's got a couple of old friends that still keep in touch with her, but she won't talk to you. She won't respond to any of your messages, any of your phone calls. She won't tell you where she is. Now, at this point, you don't know what to do. She won't, she won't accept any love from you anymore. So what do you do? You do what any, any person who's concerned about a lost soul does. You pray, Lord, they won't listen to me. Please send them someone that they will listen to. 
So you pray that. Lord, send, the, send my daughter someone who will, she will listen to. And imagine that happens. Imagine one day she's on a bus and there's a woman on the bus about your age who sees her and just her heart goes out to her. She can tell she's a lost soul. She can tell she's very, very young, too young to be alone in the world. And she goes up to her and says, sweetie, would you, would you want to come have dinner with me at my house? And your daughter's just hungry enough and homesick enough to say, yes, I will. And that night she goes over and she has roast beef and mashed potatoes and apple pie and she just feels so warm and at home she decides, I'm going to keep coming to this place. And once a week she goes to this woman's house and they become close friends and she feeds her food, but she also begins to feed her advice and tell her the kinds of things that you would tell her if your daughter would let you. And eventually she even says to her, you know, I think you need to go home. And your daughter says, yes, I think you're right. Now imagine your home the day that strange car pulls up in front of your house and you look out and you see your daughter get out of that car and you run to meet her. I mean, I don't care how mad you were, you're going to be happy to see her. And you're going to wrap her up in your arms and you're going to kiss her and you're going to say, I'm so glad you're home. Now, my question to you is, how do you feel towards this woman who has brought her home? Do you hand her a $10 bill and say, that should cover your gas, have a, good, have a nice life? I don't think so. I think you're profoundly grateful to this person who has loved your daughter when your daughter wouldn't receive love from you. Every single person you know, your neighbors, your co-workers, person who cuts your hair, the lady who takes your blood pressure at the doctor's office, the hygienist who cleans your teeth at the dentist's office, the person who teaches your kids, your kids' friends, their parents, even the people you don't like, every single one of them is a son or daughter of our Heavenly Father who loves them more than you can possibly imagine. More than you could ever love that teenage daughter you were mentioning, we were mentioning. And so when you choose to invest in one of them, whether that means I'm going to be a mentor to this younger person who needs a guide, whether that means I'm, I see somebody who's hurting and I'm going to meet their need in some way, whether that means this person is lost as a goose and I'm just going to do my best to be an influence on them toward God. I'm going to invite them to church. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to just look for an opportunity to share what God has given me. Whatever you do for one of God's lost children, you don't even know how much an act of love that is for Him. And someday we're going to stand before Him. And our salvation is not going to depend on anything we've done. So don't read this the wrong way. Your salvation is entirely dependent on what Jesus did at the cross. And we're going to celebrate that in a moment. But every one of us is going to have to stand judgment before God. And for the Christian, since our sins are all paid for, our judgment, I believe, is going to come down to, hey, you received reconciliation. What did you do with it? You received a new life. How did you use that? I brought all these people into your life who were my own lost children who wouldn't receive love from me directly. Did you show them any kind of love? Did you invest in their lives? Did you say, I'm going to go out of my way to make a project out of this person and show them who God is? That's a life well lived. That's our job. And once you realize that, it changes everything. 